Hello everyone, welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Lexi Farian, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. I'd like to start off today with a content warning, because we're going to be discussing intimate partner violence and the systemic factors that contribute to it, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. I just wanted to give all listeners a heads up in case this is something that may be triggering. Our phenomenal guest today is Hannah Rochford, a fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Health Management and Policy. Hannah has interned with the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Controls Division of Violence Prevention and collaborates with a number of violence researchers at the University of Iowa, including Dr. Corey P. Asa with the University of Iowa Injury Research Prevention Center, Dr. Kari Harland in the Department of Emergency Medicine, and Dr. Mark Berg with the Public Policy Center. Last year, their team created a compendium of secondary data sources and a commentary that explores the research challenges to understanding the relationship between COVID-19 and rates of injury and violence. Hannah's interest in violence prevention and research experience has provided her with expertise around systemic factors that contribute to intimate partner violence, or IPV, including COVID-19, and what health policy's role is in preventing, identifying, and responding to IPV. Thanks so much for being here with us today, Hannah. So let's get right into our questions for today. To start off, Hannah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the field of intimate partner violence and violence prevention? Absolutely. So I am Iowa born and raised. I uh, was an undergrad here at the University of Iowa also, but in a different field. And so we would be here all day if I tried to, to tell my, you know, winding path into public health and violence prevention in full. But um, I guess in, in summary, a, a series of very unplanned experiences kind of brought me into this space. I stumbled into public health um, doing research in another space and, and really fell in love with this idea of the best solution to any problem being preventing that problem. And around the same time, a separate set of experiences helped me understand how common and how damaging violence within families and partnerships is. So merging those two realizations and learning how to leverage public health strategies to prevent this type of harm um, has allowed me to kind of find my, my professional passion, and I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. I think that winding path that you mentioned is incredibly common, both in the field of public health and many fields overall. Lots of people seem to stumble into their passions through experience, and I think that's a kind of amazing way to figure out where you belong. So to kind of dive into more of what you were just saying, you've mentioned intimate partner violence or IPV several times. Can you kind of define that term for us and talk about the prevalence of IPV before the COVID-19 pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a really good question. Um, when we think of intimate partner violence, it's a, a term that you know continues to evolve, but generally kind of broadly when I say intimate partner violence, what I referred to are, you know, a number of harmful behaviors in which one member of an intimate or romantic partnership, be that a marriage or a domestic partnership or a dating relationship or a co-parent relationship, exerts control over the other in an abusive way. 
So there's considerable variation in terms of how abuse in a relationship can present and physical violence, right, is often kind of what comes to mind when we think of intimate partner violence. Um, but other harms can also occur. So either in lieu of or in addition to physical violence, IPV circumstances can include any combination of isolation or financial abuse, reproductive and sexual abuse, psychological violence, and or social abuse, which essentially means leveraging one's children or other key social relationships to manipulate another person, in addition to kind of what, what classically comes to mind in terms of physical violence. So as you were providing that definition, it kind of struck me on how broad intimate partner violence or IPV is. And I think that normally we've heard this term domestic violence. Is there a difference between IPV and domestic violence or does IPV kind of fall under the umbrella of domestic violence? Sure, that's a good question too. So um, domestic violence maybe is kind of the, the more classic term, right? And as we think about how our um, relationship norms have changed with time, the, the terminology has kind of changed too. So domestic, you know, thinking about what that word conventionally means kind of of the home, right? And so when we think about um, intimate partner violence, you know, a, a long, long time ago, it was kind of more exclusive to marriages, to in-home settings. But again, as our um, partnership forms or relationship styles have kind of diversified, I think intimate partner violence has kind of become the more inclusive, the more sweeping term. Um, neither are correct or incorrect, but intimate partner violence, I think, kind of makes space for partnerships other than marriages, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I think it's important um, in any field to have definitions evolving with changing circumstances and expectations over time. Um, so I'm curious to know, over time as these definitions have evolved and changed, have the demographics of those primarily affected by intimate partner violence evolved and changed? And if so, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So that's a that's a very important question. And the short answer is yes. So, you know, to be sure, intimate partner violence affects all groups of people. It's it's a very cross-cutting experience across um, racial groups, across different life chapters in terms of age, um, across all socioeconomic classes, all genders, and so forth. But as with most public health challenges, inequities create disproportionate burdens for groups that have historically held lower social power. Um, so these groups include members of the LGBTQIA community, the Black community, the Indigenous community, other communities of color, uh, women, undocumented individuals, those who struggle with housing insecurity, economic insecurity, with substance use challenges, um, and other either demographic or, or circumstantial groups that have, again, historically been marginalized. That makes a lot of sense. That seems to be quite similar to a lot of other health disparities that we see with particular out health outcomes in public health. So your answer there kind of led into my next question and kind of touched on a lot of it, actually. But I'm curious to know more about how these social ecological factors um, affect the health outcome of IPV. And for anyone that doesn't know, socio-ecological factors are anything 
um, social or environmental in your life that can affect your health aside from just like bacteria and genetics and things like that. So this can be anything um, from the neighborhood that you live in to your race, uh, to your stress levels, to federal policies that impact your health. Um, so I'm curious to see if there are any more of those socio-ecological factors that really stand out to you. Yeah, certainly. So as you mentioned, um, the, the socio-ecological model is a really helpful model within public health. And if we can, you know, I don't know, paint a, a little bit of a mental picture for our audience today, if we think of a socio-ecological model, it might be helpful to think of kind of, um, uh, like nesting dolls, if you're familiar with those, kind of we have a, a, a big circle and then smaller circles kind of nested within that. So we all exist in these nested systems, right? And at the very core, our smallest circle in the middle are my individual level characteristics, right? So my circumstances, my demographics. And as we mentioned, right, these are, are some, some big important factors um, in terms of um, shaping my risk for IPV experiences. But as we kind of move out, right, acknowledging we all exist in kind of these nested systems, we have a larger society, we exist within various communities, and within those communities, we also have different relational networks. And so at each of these system levels, we can observe factors that elevate one's risk for IPV perpetration and victimization. Um, and so if we, again, and we talked about the individual level a little bit. So kind of beginning at maybe those lower levels, um, violence theory helps us understand that our close relationships, especially in our formative years, help us develop social schemas or kind of these heuristic cues for reading and responding to situations that we encounter. These also help us develop a sense of social control or understanding that, you know, I can't really behave willy-nilly because um, there's long-term consequences to my actions. But if I exist in kind of a, a hostile environment in these formative years, I will learn to interpret social interactions very differently and will be more sensitive to any perceived threat than someone who does not. And or if, again, I lack important social attachments early in life, I will struggle to learn to regulate my conduct. So this in mind, policies that support family stability, security, healthy parenting practices can help prevent the development of antisocial tendencies, of low social control, and social schemas that may promote hostile behavior or aggression as an individual grows. And then if we can kind of keep zooming out through those levels, moving past individual and past relational to the community level, factors that shape the prevalence of violence include a lot of different environmental factors, like you mentioned, right? So things like the density of alcohol outlets, the accessibility and acceptability of legal resource pathways, residential segregation and neighborhood poverty are also big factors that shape how an individual experiences violence. And then again, our, our largest, our most general level at the societal level Factors that shape IPV include um, social and cultural norms surrounding how we think of violence as a means to resolve conflict, whether that's really acceptable, whether that's only acceptable in certain situations, or that's something that we really don't think is, is okay. And then again, more formally, I guess, health and economic and educational and social policies all shape the extent 
of inequities between and stressors that are experienced by groups in society. Another important violence theory is called strain theory. And essentially, this helps us understand when an individual is faced with severe persistent stress from economic insecurity or discrimination or, again, otherwise, an individual will feel kind of a pressure to take steps to reduce that stress or retaliate against that source of strain. And in doing so, violent behavior can occur. I think that was an excellent explanation of the socio-ecological model in this context. And I think that's where a lot of disconnect lies within people understanding that we're all influenced by systems and our health is influenced by the systems that we live in from the smallest thing to maybe our individual experiences all the way through as a child, all the way through our formative years. Um, So that was, again, an excellent explanation. And I would encourage anyone listening to try to think about health problems in that context. So we've talked a lot about this socio-ecological model, and we've kind of established um, that a lot of different things go into causing and perpetuating IPV. And I think we've all realized during the COVID-19 pandemic that this pandemic has put a lot of strain on our social, economical, and environmental systems. So what kind of clued you and your team in as researchers that, hey, COVID is having a major effect on this and we really need to get on this issue? That's a great question. And we see, you know, COVID appearing in, you know, a myriad of of research spaces, right? You know, far beyond just the most direct, you know, communicable disease research. It's shaping our communication and it's shaping, you know, finances and it's shaping, you know, most, if not all facets of our existence in some way or or another. Um, So in understanding how, you know, and the implications of of those impacts is is really important for the research community to do in general. Um, In terms of COVID, kind of in the context of, you know, violence within intimate partnerships and within families, COVID placed major social and economic stress on, on many households. COVID also alienated people from healthy stress coping mechanisms, and COVID isolated people from others outside of their immediate household and concurrently limited their access to privacy within their household. So these factors kind of make a perfect storm for violence to occur, to then increase in severity, and for individuals in danger to face even more barriers than normal in reaching safety. So again, some examples of these might be, I am in an unsafe home. I am probably not really going to have the privacy to be able to call victim services for support that I would in the event COVID wasn't happening and I was outside of my my house more regularly. Or again, perhaps in non-COVID circumstances, I would have the economic means to secure alternative housing for myself and distance myself from whoever was was harming me. Those were some, again, important barriers that made it challenging for victim survivors to distance themselves from harm within COVID. And again, those, those big kind of systemic stressors maybe didn't, you know, create violence necessarily, um, but again, certainly foreseeably increased the presence of physical violence in already abusive relationships and or increased the severity of of the violence that was occurring. 
that seems to make a lot of sense with a lot of the data and just facts that we've heard throughout the pandemic. So that kind of brings me back to something that you brought up a little bit earlier in your definition of IPV, which is that intimate partner violence is not just limited to romantic relationships. And during COVID, we saw this issue of potentially a lot more people being brought into households that weren't normally there, whether it's extended family or friends for their own safety or for the economic well-being of the unit. And I'm kind of curious to know if that exacerbated this issue of IPV as well. That's a really good question. And I guess when we think of household, maybe maybe a better word to use is kind of your exposure bubble, you know, right? And, and really peak COVID times and still even now, right? We're all being conscious of who we are in person with for extended periods of time. So even if it was not someone that I was cohabitating with necessarily, you know, my significant other was probably someone that I included kind of in that exposure bubble. And so even if, right, we don't have this kind of more classic domestic violence circumstance with a shared residence, um, the fact that I am more isolated than I was previously becomes really important. Right. It becomes easier for a perpetrator to kind of exert abuse, physical or otherwise, if they, you know, kind of have the security of knowing their victim isn't necessarily being kind of inadvertently watched or inadvertently observed by their usual social network. You know, a coworker isn't really going to be in the same position to observe, you know, strange behavior or minor injuries or their, you know, family and friends, again, aren't going to be with them or with them in person nearly as much as before COVID was, was with us. I think that brings up a great point that we all kind of maybe recognized during this pandemic, um, whether it affected us directly or affected others, is that we were all really cut off from our normal routines and through that cut off from a lot of resources that are just present in our normal routines. So in the situation of IPV, where we now know that it's not just limited to domestic partners, uh, I'm thinking of people who are cut off from those in their lives who may have been mandatory reporters, like school teachers or maybe people in HR departments who are kind of trained or have gone through some sort of training to recognize these signs and symptoms um, in others. So I think that that's definitely something we need to recognize as a consequence of this pandemic is that um, lack of access to normal resources. So with that, we've talked about how much strain was put on our system during COVID-19. Economically, socially, we all went through these major changes. And a lot of those factors that had added pressure or changed are ones that affect IPV. So I'm curious to see if you know if there was a jump in either prevalence or incidence of intimate partner violence over the pandemic. Sure, no, that's, that's a very good question. So given data challenges, we only have kind of an empirical glimpse into the full impact of COVID-19 on violence within families and partnerships. But again, the empirical glimpse that we do have kind of aligns with our theoretical suspicions, right? That since the onset of COVID-19, there has been more um, calls for service or 911 calls related to intimate partner violence concern. There's been more emergency department utilization for intimate partner violence related concerns. And again, these other kind of proxy outcomes that we can make use of 
And this pattern of, of increase was particularly visible within kind of our, our initial lockdown period, that spring and summer of, of 2020. So it's difficult to make really sweeping causal statements about which of the theorized COVID-related factors are driving most of this increase. Um, but we do have empirical reason to suspect that COVID has increased the prevalence and increased the severity of IPV outcomes. So that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting that you often have to rely on these kind of secondary or proxy sources for this data, which leads me directly into my next set of questions, which are all around this lack of data and information that we have. It's so interesting to me that we live in such an information-driven world where you can find out virtually anything within seconds if you have access to the internet. Um, And it's kind of mind-blowing that we just don't have access to this incredibly important data. So can you talk a little bit about why that is and why we're lacking this information? Totally. So this is a a major challenge kind of across violent outcomes, right? Not just intimate partner violence, but child maltreatment, teen dating violence, sexual violence, and so forth. And the nature of these public health challenges really make right, valid, reliable data, a a challenge to come by, especially attaining that in a timely manner. Um, So there are are kind of four major camps of of large secondary data for um, intimate partner violence outcomes. There's data from our justice sector, data from our health sector, data from large surveys, um, and data from fatal violence surveillance systems. So each of these kind of carry their own benefits and challenges. The justice sector data um, to start there maybe is also referred to as official crime data. And essentially this represents the crimes that are officially reported to police. So in the event a crime is not reported to the police or if a crime is reported, but that jurisdiction opts not to report to the larger crime databases kind of at a national level, then that incident is kind of lost from our data. Also, the nature of this data underrepresents the experiences of many communities of color, undocumented populations, and other groups that may have reason to be hesitant to seek out criminal justice involvement after experiencing violence. So this creates a major health equity concern, as if the data I'm using systematically excludes the experiences of some groups, the solutions or the policy changes that I'm deriving from that data may or may not equitably support the needs of everyone in a population. Similarly, health sector data only represents those who have sought health care after a, a violent event. And so if for any reason an individual doesn't feel they can or otherwise isn't able to, to seek this care, or if care is sought but a provider doesn't recognize that as an act of violence or doesn't code the injury in a way that indicates it was a result of violence, that's also not captured in, in the data that we have. So further, the health sector data often tells us a lot about the nature of the injury, right? Kind of that's the the purpose of of the providers, the individuals who are generating the the data, but lacks important circumstantial variables that are often present in official crime data and and can be really important for, again, unpacking the the patterns of, of violent behavior empirically. 
And then the, the nature of IPV makes survey data, kind of that third camp of, of data, challenging from ethical and safety perspectives. So even the, the longest standing and the most rigorously conducted crime victimization survey, the National Crime Victimization Survey, or the NCVS, has major challenges with underreporting of IPV, given these surveys are conducted in person in someone's home. So in the event I'm being harmed and my perpetrator is in the next room, I probably won't be super forthcoming with those experiences. And even if I'm safe, having to discuss, you know, traumatic things without any sort of beneficial purpose attached to it, like receiving healthcare or supporting a victim services provider and helping me or supporting an investigation, that's that's not ideal either, right, in terms of supporting that, that victim's well-being. So the best quality data that we have arguably are the fatal violence surveillance system data. So the CDC has the NVDRS or the National Violent Death Reporting System, and this compiles violent deaths across all states and circumstances and includes really rich circumstantial variables. However, because it only includes instances of fatal violence, work done using this data will never benefit the people whose deaths populate it, right? Our our window to prevent the terrible thing that happened to them has passed. We can only learn from these missed opportunities in hopes of protecting others. So that's, you know, doesn't, doesn't feel really warm and fussy. And I guess another kind of sweeping challenge that I should mention across all of these categories of data sources is that the, the time that it takes to compile and organize these data sets to be able to administer them to researchers is considerable. It's a lot of work. And so when a major event like COVID happens and we're needing to take steps, you know, kind of in an expedient way to protect our population, we, we have very limited evidence base you know, with which to do so. We have kind of these small scale hospital specific or jurisdiction specific or, you know, victim service organization specific slices of data, but we don't really have access, you know, in real time or at least in the short term to these larger um, quantitative data sources. And again, as important as qualitative work is in this space, that too can take a lot of time to to generate. So the COVID IPV specific work that's been done thus far has made very creative use of very finite amounts of data, but it's difficult to generalize these smaller scale works to guide major sweeping policy decisions. Thank you, Hannah, for that overview of data sources. I previously wasn't aware of where this data was coming from, and I would venture to say that other folks aren't as well. This does lead me into my next set of questions that I kind of want to probe into what you just said a little bit more. Before we do that, I want to clarify a couple things for listeners. Um, Hannah mentioned these things called quantitative and qualitative data. So just to give some definitions, quantitative data is your numbers-based statistical data. How many people experienced X versus Y? It's all basically numbers, and it's very... In terms of data aggregation, it's pretty quick to get. On the other hand, qualitative data uh, is more about lived experiences and is typically gathered through interviews or surveys with more kind of open-ended questions um, and provides a really rich, really valuable source of data, but it does take a lot longer to gather compared to quantitative data. 
So now that we've kind of clarified that, I want to jump into a couple questions I had about what you just talked about. So you mentioned two different types of sources. You mentioned justice sources, so like law enforcement, uh, police settings, and then healthcare sources. And I'm curious to know if workers within these two sectors, both healthcare and the justice sector, are trained to recognize and then handle this type of violence specifically. Uh, I hope. I hope so. Um, <laughs> um, I think, right, there's, there's considerable variation in terms of um, the not only what types of training right but the caliber of training that professionals are you know across sectors are exposed to and i also think there's something to be said for the importance of infield experience right you know having a training or attending a webinar or reading a book kind of with these these guidelines is one thing but having again an extended period of experience where you're learning, you know, to recognize some of especially the more subtle indicators of harm goes a long way. So I think it would be, you know, lovely in the event kind of a, a you know, rigorous comprehensive training was part of the curriculum for, again, our um, justice sector professionals, for our, our healthcare professionals. And again, you mentioned the importance of, of mandatory reporters, which gave me a thought that I, I want to come back to a little bit later. So it would be, again, beautiful if, if that would be something that, again, kind of was, was universally delivered, right? But we run into this challenge of this public health challenge is important, but so are all of our public health challenges. And individuals have a very finite amount of um, time and energy to be able to kind of consume and then implement, act on all of these different trainings. So I think while that would be phenomenal and, and valuable, probably is uh, a, a challenging aspiration to to implement. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm thinking specifically of healthcare workers who were so burdened by the pandemic, you know, who were just kind of focused on keeping people alive, keeping people off ventilators, um, and just handling these things as they came. Um, so I could see how it would be easy for things like intimate partner violence training and maybe just awareness of other health issues. It would be easy for that stuff to slip through the cracks, especially in the face of this outright emergency caused by COVID. So that makes this and so many other issues so hard to address because we recognize that there are major problems within our society and we have people out here kind of saying that they're an issue, but where do we put the burden um, and how do we address putting that issue onto people who are already so burdened by things like COVID-19 if you're a healthcare worker? Um, so that kind of leads me into my next question, which is about prevention and how we can prevent this in the first place. You mentioned that you got here kind of through your love of prevention, and that's kind of how I got to where I am today. There's that famous quote that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And I really buy into that. And I would venture that a lot of others do too. So do you think that kind of getting better data and upping our data collection measures, especially around intimate partner violence could help us um, better our prevention efforts toward this issue? And if you do, can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Sure. No, I, I wonder a lot about this too, right? Our, our field, we're, we're very good at, at sniffing out problems and it, it takes, takes a long time and a lot of smart, diligent people to, again, collaborate and, and figure out how, how we really 
um, uproot this this kind of ugly ugly problem. And I think there is there's a huge amount of untapped data, right, kind of across the sectors that victim survivors encounter, right, as they're navigating these these experiences. And the challenge is, right, finding a way to aggregate this in kind of an automated way that isn't super burdenful for the professionals who are already working really hard and whose jobs are, again, nuanced enough, not, not adding to their plate but having the data be high quality and available in a timely way. Like that's kind of the, the aim. And again, we mentioned our justice sector and our healthcare sectors already, but our victim services sector is also super important. And I think there's a, there's a huge amount of untapped data within that space. And understandably so, the victim services sector needs to be extremely careful in terms of confidentiality from, from a safety perspective. And so finding a way to support not only the aggregation and automation of that, but doing so in a way that that absolutely does not put any victim survivor who's receiving services um, at risk of being identified. But in the event we could overcome those challenges and victim services calls, you know, an intake into, you know, shelter setting, those information could be you know, again, somehow automatically entered into a central system in semi-real time, a lot of really meaningful work could be done. However, the infrastructure that would be required to achieve something like that in a space that's already pretty profoundly underfunded with extremely overworked professionals makes that feel um, unlikely, at least in the near future. You know, there's conversations around, you know, making jurisdiction crime reports mandatory rather than optional. So giving us more of kind of a census of of violent crime data and also standardizing what and how that's reported. And again, shifting more towards kind of an automated data entry system to make reports available for researchers more so in real time or as close to real time as possible would be really helpful. But again, require major infrastructure investment and still wouldn't necessarily overcome the equity challenges that we'd mentioned that are kind of attached especially to to data in in this space or again kind of the analogous effort within the health sector is maybe mandating that positive intimate partner violence screenings that are performed within the health sector space like are, are somehow automatically submitted into some central data hub Again, could be quite helpful, but again, maybe wouldn't overcome the lack of circumstantial data challenge and would also require major investment. And so all of that said, well, I think, you know, taking steps towards these aspirational improvements is is worthwhile. I don't think that we can let be the, the perfect be the enemy of the good right, as a research community and being scrappy and being creative with what we have and then making careful methodologic decisions with the limitations of our data in mind are imperative kind of while that data infrastructure is gradually improving. We we can't, um, you know, kind of twiddle our, our thumbs in hopes that perfect data will drop on our laps someday. It's important to, again, do the best we can with what we have. The perfect being the enemy of the good is a quote that I say pretty much all the time to myself and in my public health classes and in the work that I do. I think, especially being in academia as you and I both are right now, it's really easy 
to get caught up in striving for perfection. And that's not a bad thing. We always need to be striving for systemic change and being the best that we can be. But in the meantime, I think it's important to remember that there is groundwork that we can be doing that happens on a much faster pace while we're also striving for those systemic changes. So we've talked a lot about data and I want to go back to that. Um, we've talked a lot about how better data collection could really help us address this issue of IPV um, and the associated disparities. But I want to go back to the systems level thinking that you talked about with your nesting doll analogy earlier. I know that better data could solve a lot of issues, but if we were to look at systemic changes um, what kind of systemic changes would need to happen to kind of reach this gold standard of intimate partner violence prevention? No, I think that's a, a great question. And, and two things come to mind, right? When we kind of reflect back on our um, prevention history within the intimate partner violence space, there's kind of two kind of antiquated pillars in, in my view, right? A lot of our prevention strategies have been very concentrated kind of at that individual level. And there has been far fewer efforts, right? That are tapping into our more systemic prevention opportunities at particularly the community and the societal levels. And then the second kind of antiquated prevention strategy element, I guess, there's been centering on helping victims protect themselves rather than preventing the creation of, of perpetrators or perpetrating behavior. So when we think of things like self-defense classes or knowing in the event I'm in the middle of a violent event to avoid the bathroom or other areas with lots of hard surfaces or having a taser or maze with me a lot of the time, right? Those, those are problematic for a number of reasons. And it isn't to say, right, that there aren't circumstances where those things are, are good or, or important, but there's, there's a number of problems with placing the burden of prevention on victims, right? So this can inadvertently suggest that if you have experienced these harms, you must not have taken the appropriate steps to protect yourself. And, that, and that's very problematic. And second, let's say, right, I am an individual and I recognize some, some unhealthy behaviors, kind of some red flags early in a relationship. And I distance myself from that, you know, or I am, you know, even further kind of encountering a violent event and, you know, find a way to, to distance myself and, and get to short-term safety, right? Those that that's good, right? That that's something that, that we want to have happen, but I, I don't think all of our prevention eggs can be in that basket because even if we mitigate kind of these isolated harmful events, once a victim has kind of distanced themselves from that perpetrator, the perpetrator's tendencies will probably just displace to somebody else who may or may not be in a position to protect themselves. So I think ideally our primary prevention needs to center on mitigating the development of perpetrators and perpetrating behavior and not on positioning and expecting victims to have, you know, these, these array of tools to protect themselves should they experience violence. So as we noted, you know, previously, I think achieving that goal entails really systemic changes across our socioecologic levels. And I also think I want to emphasize, right, as we think about prevention on a continuum, 
Primary prevention, yes, should center on the prevention of the development of perpetrators, but secondary and tertiary prevention that are very centered on supporting victim survivors with the resources that they need for long-term safety and healing are still very important. I certainly don't want to minimize the importance of those. And I guess the other piece that comes to mind as we think about this prevention ideal is that our, our recourse pathways that are kind of normative for perpetrators to go through, you know, after it's been identified, right, that they have been harming their their partner are kind of notoriously ineffective at preventing future acts of harm. So you did this thing that we wish you hadn't have done and you had a consequence, but we haven't taken our opportunity to, again, work with you and position you to not display this type of behavior in the future. So taking kind of that that tertiary prevention piece and flipping it into a primary prevention opportunity, I think is is really important. Re-examining, right, you know, how we approach perpetrators who have already displayed this behavior as an untapped prevention opportunity is worthwhile. Definitely. And I think we see examples of this opportunity to kind of hit that tertiary prevention measure all the time. Uh, One example that comes to my head is sexual assault on college campuses. A lot of the rhetoric is typically towards the women who are victims, um, not only women, but the victims themselves, to not walk alone at night or to carry some sort of protective device when we could be tapping into the perpetrators themselves and preventing the violence from the start. So with that, I'm kind of curious to know, do you know of any of examples of prevention at that level that are going on right now or that have been successful at the small scale level that you can talk about? Sure. So um, there are some evidence-based prevention tools that are, again, there's, there's some excitement in the field around. However, as I mentioned, these are very concentrated on kind of the individual or relational level. There's a program called Coaching Boys into Men, where it encourages male role models to work with young male athletes who may be susceptible to kind of absorbing toxic masculine concepts, to reframing how young men think of masculinity and how young men think of violence as a, a, a coping mechanism. So there's, there's been some success there, again, just to name an example. And there's, again, other, other similar programmatic efforts. And again, while these are good and while these are important, I think there's, there's really an untapped space in terms of our, our system level changes, right? When we talked earlier about, right, the importance of formative years and these social schemas that I form and the self-control level that I form and the strains that I'm exposed to, right? I think we have major policy opportunities to support stability and security and healthy parenting practices, right? So we are, again, thinking really far upstream in terms of prevention, and that is not only protective for, right, potential victims, but also protective and helpful for the health outcomes and the quality of life of individuals at risk for developing perpetrating behavior. And all of that is important. Thank you. It sounds like there are some great examples of work being done to prevent this issue. And it sounds like there are a lot of opportunities for work at that individual and 
furthermore at the systemic level that could be done to improve our prevention efforts. So I kind of want to end it on that note of all these great opportunities for change. Um, and I want to go into our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what is something that you thought you knew, maybe going into your field or your research, that you later realized that you were wrong about? Sure. Um, gosh, so many things. Uh, <laughs> um, so, like I said, a, a handful of things come to mind. Um, one one big one and a few small ones. So I'll talk fast and, and cut me off when, when we're out of time. But I guess even if we, we don't have time to talk about the others, it, I think it, it took me a while to fully understand how vital it is to defer to a victim survivor as the expert on their own circumstances, right? And that sounds really intuitive, you know, and like it would be an easy thing to do, but it can be so tempting if we are supporting someone navigating a dangerous or an abusive relationship to want to jump in and just yank them out, you know, intervene to distance the person that we care about from this, this terrible thing. Um, but unfortunately, it, it doesn't and it, it can't work that way. If someone hasn't reached a point where they're ready to leave or if someone maybe is ready to leave but isn't able to for, you know, major safety or, or logistic barriers to, to doing so, you know, thinking that we know better and trying to force their hand to get out because we're ready for this nightmare to be over for them can invite kind of a slew of negative consequences. So, you know, if we think back to our earlier discussion, we remember IPV is about control, right? And a perpetrator takes away a victim's control over their own existence. And even if we have the best of intentions, trying to take over on behalf of a victim that we love essentially does the same thing, right? It takes away their control. And so our ultimate goal has to be to empower the person that we care about, reinforce that they're deserving of respect, and take cues from them as to what they need to reach safety and to reach healing. And I guess on a related note, I didn't always appreciate how unhelpful it is to, to villainize a perpetrator to a victim, where if we vocalize that we think an abusive partner is, you know, maybe not our favorite person, you know, even if we're right and they're totally the worst, our, if our victim isn't in a position to act on that and to leave, we've just isolated them further. Given we've expressed this negative view, the victim that we care about will probably not be very forthcoming with us about the, the negative things that they're experiencing and will probably be hesitant to reach out to us, even if they really needed help or, or are in some sort of imminent danger. And this creates a huge barrier to support and it can make it even more difficult for, for a victim to reach safety when this is already so challenging to do. Um, and so as difficult it is to watch someone go through the ups and downs of an IPV circumstance, the most important things that we can do is, is to not let them be isolated further, right? To, to make sure that we've established ourselves as a safe place for them to come to talk. And second, by not letting our emotions take precedent over theirs. You know, this is their journey and this is their healing and their healing is contingent on again, getting control over their own circumstances again, not just shifting from a harmful controlling party, you know, to a party that's trying to help. And I guess the second one that comes to mind is quick. So I'll, I'll sneak it in. Um, 
I, I underestimated the extent to which perpetrators can be deceptive, um, but I, I don't anymore. Um, we have to remember that a perpetrator convinced their victim that they were wonderful enough, you know, for the victim to want their companionship and to develop an emotional bond with them and feel compelled to stay even after bad things began to happen. So effective perpetrators can have a way of making themselves feel you know, very decent and very likable, and that would be unthinkable, you know, that they'd be capable of such a thing, which isn't to say that we need to be paranoid about everyone we encounter, but it is to say that when a victim tells us something, we need to listen. Absolutely, and I think that those are such difficult skills, I would imagine, to learn, and they come through a lot of experience, it seems like. But I hope that for myself and all of our other listeners, those are things that we can take away and recognize within our own lives. So I want to thank you again, Hannah. That's all the time we have for today, but this was a really informative conversation about an issue that can often go untalked about. So I want to wrap up by saying that if you or someone you know is experiencing intimate partner violence or abuse, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline for immediate support at 800-799-SAFE. Or if you're here at the University of Iowa, you can reach out to the Women's Resource and Action Center at wrac.uiowa.edu. And if you're here in Iowa City, you can reach out to the Domestic Violence Intervention Program at 800-373-1043. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was hosted and written by Lexi Therian, edited and produced by Alexis Clark. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay happy, stay healthy, and keep learning.